Emmaus Church is a church community delighting in Jesus together for the joy of Ankeny. We hope the following sermon brings you closer to the joy we find in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about us, please visit EmmausChurchAnkeny.com. Have you been abandoned? Have you ever experienced the feeling of rejection, intentional rejection, and abandonment? Uh, This is a common human experience. We've all felt it to one degree or another. Um, I know for myself, I went through a period of feeling utterly isolated and it was the most horrible feeling it put me in the hospital well not really in the hospital put me into the er i thought i was having a heart attack i was so consumed with like i felt like my chest was caving in on me it was crushing happened twice and both times the doctors just look at me and say, do you have anything going on in your life? (laughs) Because all the tests would come back normal. They had me go see a cardiologist, had to do an echo, all this, and in in the end they're like, maybe maybe, uh, you need to get on some anti-anxiety or anti-depression, you know, some SSRIs or something, because you clearly are stricken with anxiety and depression. This This is what abandonment does, it isolates us, we feel alone, and we, we don't just feel alone because we may be outside the presence of people that we want to be in the presence of, but we feel alone inside, just feel utterly alone. There is a real emotional pain with that. There's trauma that is caused in our souls because of that. It is a horrific experience, and yet that is what we see happening in our text today. God himself goes through that horrifying experience. Not only do we see it, we see Jesus' response to it, how he engaged and actually pressed into that horrible experience. We see the character And the power that enabled Jesus to endure it. And here's Mark's point. Here's Mark's point in helping us to think through this. The point of all 40 of these verses is just this. To stay awake and commune with God. That's that's the point that Mark wants us to gather from this. To stay awake and commune with Jesus. Jesus endured this pain awake and communing with God, and he calls us into the same experience. And we're going to see this come out in two different ways. We're going to see that Jesus experiences abandonment, and then we're going to answer the question, why do we need to see Jesus abandoned? So Jesus is abandoned, and why do we need to see that? Why do we need to see that? So, first, Jesus is abandoned. He's abandoned by God. He's abandoned by the system. He's abandoned by his friends. He is fully, completely, utterly, and intentionally rejected and abandoned. And we see this come out. We see, uh, we see it in several different ways. I'm going to point out three of those ways that it comes out of the text this morning. But, but there's many different ways in which it comes out of this text. We see it that he experiences the fear of being abandoned. He anticipates it. He sees it coming. He knows it's coming. And he is filled with anxiety, dread, and horror at the reality of what is actually coming his, his way. In verses 43 or verses 32 to 42 describes for you a, a very popular scene where this is where, where, where you see this happening with with clarity the Methodist church in which uh, I grew up in well not grew up in was in for a while my when I was very young I think it was in kindergarten when we started going there for for a couple years it's a little Methodist church um, in Elwood Iowa population like four 
26. It's 26. Population 26. Wow. <laughs> At the time, they had a bar and a post, post office, but the bar burnt down. I don't know if it ever reopened, but anyway. So Elwood, Iowa, they had a Methodist church, one church in the town. Um, and I'll never forget, I can picture the inside of that building. Not only because I got a lot of physical pain in that building from my mother wrenching on the back of my neck, forcing me to be quiet and sit still during church, but also, but also because up on the wall, on, we'd, all, you know, we'd sit facing this way, up on the wall to my left, there was always this picture of Jesus on the wall, a painting. It's a famous painting, you probably have seen it, where he's in Gethsemane, he's in this spot here in verse 32 to 42, He's in Gethsemane and he's praying and he's got his hands folded and he's leaning over a big rock and a light from heaven is kind of shining down on him, illuminating his face. And he's just got this look of horror on his face as he's praying. And that, that's what's happening. That, that painting tries to get at this. And it's, for me, it's burnt into, into my brain, this image. And Jesus is seen here, and it's pictured in that image, of spending a night in agonizing prayer. Up to this point, Jesus has been going out in battle against sin, Satan, and death. He's been winning. He's been winning. He's been healing people. He's been casting out demons. He's driving Satan back. He's been winning the, the popularity contest, so to speak, in terms of exposing the, the corruptions of the religious elite and the political elites of his day. But as we began to see last week, it all starts to unravel. It all starts to start coming apart at the seams. The religious elites and the politically motivated, they hate Jesus, they want him dead, and they found a man inside, a rat, a mole, and Judas, who's ready and acting to betray Jesus and works to facilitate the end. He works to facilitate the capture and the arrest of Jesus. And that's what's playing out in these verses. So here in verse 32, in this place, in this little uh, garden called Gethsemane, it's at the foot of the Mount of Olives just east of Jerusalem, just outside of Jerusalem. And it's at the bottom of the valley. There's a wine press there. And we're told that Jesus is here with his disciples. And in particular, he's with James Peter and John, his closest three disciples, and he's praying through the night. And his prayer is not conventional. Not a conventional prayer. It's not a, oh God, you're so wonderful and flowery and beautiful and super spiritual. It's angry. It's frustrated. It's harrowingly dark and sad. painful, filled with anxiety. Listen to the language of verses 33 and 34 as he, as he prays. He says, And he took with him Peter, James, and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. In the Greek language, what you hear there is horror. These words don't adequately capture the, the depth of the distress he felt in his soul. In verse 34, he said to them, my soul, this is God speaking, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Even to death. He, he is so overwhelmed with fear and anxiety that he wants to, he feels like he's going to die. And the question is, why? Why is Jesus so emotionally stressed out? Why is he here Seeing death on the horizon. Well, we can see from his requests as he prays, we can look at his prayer requests and we can see what he, what, what he has in his mind. We see these in verse 35. In verse 35, he, he's praying to God and he says there, and going a little further, he fell on the ground, lays prostrate before God in a posture of humble desperation, and he prays, if it were possible that the hour might pass from him. That word, the hour, that, that, that concept, the hour might pass from him. And then in verse 6, it's a very similar request, uh, just a different word picture. In verse 36, he, he calls out to God, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. You can do anything. 
So please remove this cup from me. Remove this cup from me. The hour and the cup. These are the things that he's dreading. These are the things that are filling him with anxiety, with dread, and with with fear. He knows that Judas is on his way to have him arrested. He knows he's going to face the abandonment of one of his beloved 12 disciples in Judas. He's on his way. He knows the rest of the disciples, when Judas gets there, are going to scatter like cockroaches. He also knows he's going to be abandoned by the love of God. He knows that he's going to feel not only the isolation and abandonment of the people that he loves most, but God himself is going away from him. He is going to be isolated. And instead, as we know from the Old Testament, this this term, the hour and cup, throughout the Old Testament, throughout Israel's history, those words were always representations or descriptions of the timing and the content of God's justice and God's wrath being poured out on somebody or something. When you see the cup of God's wrath being poured out on a nation, or the cup of God's wrath being poured out on somebody, or the cup of God's indignation and anger coming at a particular hour, the hour is coming, or a day is coming. You hear the hour of the Lord, the day of the Lord throughout the Old Testament. These are all pictures of impending judgment. God's going to abandon him with his love and visit him with absolute wrath and destruction. He is going to be so alone that he will be enduring and experiencing hell itself. He's literally on the, he's standing on the precipice of hell. And he knows it. And he's freaked out about it. He's freaked out. And here's the thing. That fun little painting that I have in my mind, there is no light from heaven in this moment. It's nice in a picture. Contrast, colors, right? In a painting, it makes it look nice. But Jesus did not feel the warmth of God's shining light in this moment. He's experiencing God retracting and receding from him. He's now feeling, he's now feeling and experiencing the sensation of abandonment and isolation. His friends were even too, st- too tired to stay awake to pray with him. Did you catch that as we were reading it? His friends are falling asleep. His friends aren't even there with him, like paying attention, seeing the horror that he's enduring. They're, they're taking a nap. They're tired. They had a busy day. Right? He's alone. And boldly in this, accepts like the the contrast here so he's so afraid and so paralyzed and yet in the in that verse in that verse 36 right after he says remove this cup from me he accepts it yet not what i will but what you will he looks the demon as it were in the eye and says okay bring it on i'm 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 gonna accept it he walks into it willingly not being paralyzed by the fear, not trying to protect himself from the fear, but accepting it as God's will and facing it with intentional purpose in order to accomplish God's purposes through it, to to carry out the will and the purpose of God. He walks into it. It's crazy. So he he fears this. He, He sees it coming. But you also see that he's abandoned by the system. Verses 43 to 65, the bulk of this passage is devoted to showing us how the system has betrayed and abandoned Jesus. The authority structures, the social structures of Israel have abandoned Jesus here. They show up, these, uh, the temple authorities show up, they, condem- they arrest him, They take him to the high priest's house. They condemn him to death in front of a council in the middle of the night. And though he is innocent and he has done no wrong. The guilty ones, the hypocrites and exploiters of the people, 
they are going to abandon Jesus and in their corruption falsely condemn him to death. That's that's what's going on in these verses. In verse 43, in verse 43, we see it coming, coming apart. We see it happening. It's unfolding in front of us. Immediately, in verse 43, immediately while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now, you've got, you got to catch the irony of this. These people were working for Jesus. <laughs> These people were working for Jesus. Jesus was the one who gave the instructions in Nehemiah and Ezra to have the temple built. He was the one that wrote the job descriptions for these guys. He was the one who spoke to the prophets and told them what to put in God's law and gave them the resources necessary to construct, sustain, and continue the work of the temple. This is, these are Jesus's, this is Jesus's system. He built it. It's his idea. And yet here it is coming after him. The architect and the, ar- and the object of worship in the, in the temple. The system has not only failed the people it was designed to serve, it now fully and completely abandons the God who gave it to them. And the council, as we see in, in these verses, the council in verse 53, after they, they arrest him, they seize him, they take him away, and they, they take him, uh, it says in verse 53, to the high priest. So the, the high priest is a wealthy man. He's got a big house, very, actually very, very large house. But the, re, the reality here is that th- this council that they take him to, they don't have any authority to pronounce Jesus is guilty of any crime. We need to know that coming into this. They don't, they don't actually have authority to actually declare him guilty, nor did they have the authority to execute any punishments, including the death penalty. Israel was under Roman occupation, so the Romans were there, and they had authority in the land. And all authority in matters of this kind would have had to go through a Roman court, and adjudications on guilt or innocence would be established there, along with and any punishments that would be, be met out. This is why we're going to see, actually, next week in chapter 15, we're going to see another court case. Because it's got to go to the Roman court. Because that's where all authority is in, in this circumstance under Roman occupation. The purpose of this gathering in verses 53 and following was not to determine the guilt or innocence of Jesus. They had already determined that back in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 6, the religious elite, they saw Jesus as a threat, and from that point forward, all the way through the book of Mark, they're looking for an opportunity to kill him. He's already guilty in their mind. There's, there's these political and religious elite in, in Israel have trumped up charges because they feel threatened by him, and now they're just looking for something that's going to stick in a Roman court. That's, that's what this is. They're looking for something that's going to stick in a Roman court. He was already guilty in their mind, and this was just an opportunity to get Jesus to do or to say something that would help them make an accusation against him that the Roman court would hear and go, yeah, he needs to die. They're they're fishing, they're throwing spaghetti at the wall, and they're trying to figure out what's going to stick in a Roman court. They're trying to determine this. It's an abandonment of justice. They just simply hated Jesus. He committed no wrong. He committed no evil. He was actually doing good. And they couldn't make any accusation sticks, so they brought him. They brought, deprived him of sleep, assaulted, assaulted him with over and over again with spurious accusations. They twisted his words. And you see that all through this text. All in an attempt to get him to crack. They're intimidating him, desperately trying to get him to do or say something with the whole council present. So he would incriminate himself or do something to give them what they wanted, which was something to take to Rome and say, look, kill this dude, he's worthy of death. And so you, you, you can read there, uh, down uh, 53 and following, where they bring up all of these, and there's actually a debate. They're literally going through the different accusations in this text, trying to figure out what's going to stick. 
They bring up his words in verse 58. I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build up another not made with hands. They heard Jesus walking with his disciples in chapter 13, right? They're walking out in chapter 13, and the disciples are like, oh, this is, temple's pretty. And then Jesus is like, it's going to get destroyed. What are you doing looking at the pretty rocks? This thing has become corrupt and horrible. Why are you being distracted with the rocks? Like, yeah, they're pretty, but it's corrupt and it's hurting people. Don't be dazzling at the rocks. And so people overheard that because there was always a crowd around Jesus. It gets reported to the chief priests. And so they're like, okay, Jesus is saying he's going to destroy the temple. So maybe we can trump up a charge that he's actually going to lead a revolt and try to destroy the temple himself. And then there's a debate among them. You can, you can see, you can read it here. They're debating and eh, they couldn't agree on that. That's not really, Rome doesn't care about that. And he remains silent through it. He remains silent. He doesn't, he doesn't participate. He just takes it. But then, in verses 61 and 62, Jesus finally speaks. He finally speaks, and the high priest addressed him, frustrated with Jesus' silence, because Jesus' silence is showing that he doesn't, like, he's just there. He's just playing, playing ball. He's not afraid. And this, he, he knows he knows what's coming. And he's, again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? Are you the Christ? Now, in that culture, in that world, there were plenty of people who called themselves the Christ, the, the Messiah, the Anointed One. There were plenty of people who did, and it wasn't necessarily a crime to do so, but they were trying to lead him. They're trying to lead him to get him to say more. They're trying to get him to engage so that they can find a way in front of the roughly 70 people plus the crowd around because this house was huge and it was partly indoors and outdoors and there was like a whole crowd with fires burning out there. That's why you see Peter in there hiding in the background. And so it's a huge venue. So having all these witnesses would give them everything they needed to take it to Rome and say, look, we got all these witnesses of what happened here. But finally, Jesus speaks. And even though it wasn't illegal to say he was the Christ, Jesus takes that question and he steps it up another notch. He steps it up another notch. He says, I'm not just the Christ. He says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And this... This statement, 21st century American people were like, okay, that sounds weird. What does that mean? But in this culture, that was like the unthinkable thing any human would ever utter with their mouths. It was blasphemy of the highest degree. He's calling himself God here. And they're like, you are not God. And they freak out. They, they tear their clothes, which in that culture was a sign of, the, of blasphemy having been uttered. They, they, they're going to rip their clothes off um, in anger at this. He's quote, Jesus here is quoting Daniel 7 when he calls himself the Son of Man. And it's, Daniel 7 is a political text. And Jesus here gives them, he literally hands them on a silver platter, platter the red meat they're asking for. He, he, he's, he, has, he is willingly taking the cup and drinking it. He says, I'm not just a Christ. I'm the Son of Man. I'm going to be the one that's coming to rule as king over all the nations. I'm going to be, I'm a God. I'm going to rule at the right hand of heaven on the clouds with ultimate authority. Which, if you're a Roman is a political threat. Jesus is now committing treason against Roman occupation, and now these chief priests and the leaders can tear their clothes, satisfied, he's a heretic, he's a threat to Roman occupation, we've got all these witnesses, we're going to take it to Pilate, and now we're going to get a Roman court to condemn this man. Oh, they can finally put Jesus to bed, and they can move on with their lives, is what they're thinking this is this is what's happening here and it's just the point of all of this is not just to tell us first century history which is interesting and neat 
The point of it is to show us that Jesus, the system that Jesus created has become so corrupt and so backwards that it's now, that it's now being used to falsely condemn and to falsely oppress God Himself, the one who set it all up. Total abandonment. And then the last type of abandonment that we see Jesus, well, the last one we're going to consider, is that Jesus is abandoned by His friends. If it couldn't get worse, it does. He's abandoned by His friends. In verse 44, we've already talked about this, Judas betrays Him. Judas was working with the high priest. They're going to give him some cash in exchange for him going and telling them where Jesus and the disciples are hanging out because they've been hiding from the people who are trying to kill him all this time. And as, they, as, as Judas does, in verse 44, Judas had worked out a, like a secret sign with the, with the temple guards who were coming to arrest him, said, I'm going to kiss Jesus. And it's dark they probably wouldn't know exactly who, who they needed to arrest. So Judas goes up and kisses Jesus. And th- there's nothing real unique about that. It was very normal for, a, um, for a, a disciple to greet their rabbi with a kiss. It was, just, it was a sign of respect. It was a sign of honor to do that um, in that culture. Now, if I did that to any of you, you would probably feel a little bit awkward about that. But in that culture, it was very normal. It was a way of showing honor, respect, and, and, and appreciation for somebody. And so Judas, you just, that's why people use the phrase like the Judas kiss. That's what they're getting at is because this was a kiss of betrayal. It was intended to be a sign of respect, and that's what he was putting on display was an act of loving respect. But in reality, what it was was an act of betrayal, abandoning Jesus and handing him over to the enemy who wanted to murder him. And that's, so Judas just fully abandons Jesus, participating in the corrupt system. But in verse 50, after last week hearing the disciples claiming all up and down, oh Jesus, we're never going to leave you, we're never going to abandon you, we're never going to reject you. In verse 50, in verse 50 as, they're being, as Jesus is being arrested, it says, they all fled. Verse 50, and they all left him and fled. They're like cockroaches in a newly lit room, scattered to the corners. They all leave him. Jesus has been abandoned. No one was going to go down with the ship. Now, verse 51 and 52 come into this. And I remember the first time I read through this a week ago when I was getting ready. I read those two verses and I thought, oh my word. What am I going to do with a streaker in the middle of, a, of this text, right? you got a young man who is there as Jesus is being arrested. He's got nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And when they seize him, so they're, they're going to arrest him. He was probably mixed up in, in, in it. Um, but he leaves the linen cloth and he runs away too. What's interesting here, what's interesting, is that that word young man... Um, it, it, the way it's used, that there's a lot of different ways to say young man in Greek. This particular way was usually used of someone who would be like an associate disciple, like a young, like student is the idea. Like probably, you know, one of the one of the disciples there, as the disciples would do, is they were discipling and caring for and teaching younger men. This was probably one of one of the disciples' disciples. And as Jesus is getting arrested, he's struck with fear, eager to get away and disassociate himself with Jesus, so, so eager to get away that he's willing to run away naked. He would rather have the shame of his nakedness exposed than to be associated with Jesus. That's the image here. That it's more dignified to run through town naked than to be associated with Jesus and arrested with him. Jesus is abandoned by everyone, not just by the disciples. Even the disciples of the disciples did not want to be associated with him. He was fully, completely abandoned. And as if it couldn't get worse, it 
does. It's just like it just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. And this is what we see happening in verses 66 to 72. Down in verses 66 to 72, Jesus is abandoned even further. Not only has Peter already run away and not been at his side, not following, not willing to be arrested, to actually have someone in jail to hang out with, not, not only to like say, Jesus, you know, we care about you and we're with you. He runs away, and then, well, we see the famous, we, we all know the famous story of Peter. He finds his way, he runs away, but then goes to the high priest's house where this is happening, where Jesus is being arrested and, and tried. And what, what's interesting here is you, it's, it's almost like in a movie how you get two different views that are told to you at two different times. So you have this one event told from two different angles in succession. That's what's happening here. Uh, you, you see this council that's going on uh, in, in the high priest's house, and it tell, you get a, the story of what happened, and then it pulls back, takes you back to the beginning, and it shows you, okay, now here's what's happening with Peter during all of this. Peter is there. He's present. He is watching Jesus be falsely condemned by a corrupt system. And he watches it. And as he does, Peter is warming himself, and a little girl, a little girl comes up to him, a servant girl, which was norm, would be normal in these kind of circumstances because these houses had a lot of servants and they had like fire pits on the outside just to keep people warm at night. And even though Peter along with the other disciples were sure they would never ever abandon Jesus, in this moment fear strikes him as he worries for his own safety. And here in verse 66, a servant girl, a little girl, recognizes Peter. He's been around with Jesus in the temple. Seen, seen the group walking around. He says, hey, you're, you're one of Jesus' friends. And he says, nope, not me. That's not me. You got, the, you got the wrong person. It's dark out here. The shadows are weird. It's not me. I'm not him. And he tries to get away. It describes him. He tries to get away. He's trying to go hide. But she recognizes him again. She's not giving up. She's like a normal kid. She's not giving up on this, right? She, and so she says to the people around her, like, that's, that's one of Jesus' dudes, right? And the people are like, yeah, that, that looks like one of Jesus' dudes. And Peter's like, nope, nope, not me, not me. But then in verse 71, someone else and a crowd gather around and say, yeah, you look like one of Jesus' dudes. And denying it, he doesn't just deny it, he denies it with an oath, it says. The way kids might say something like, no, I didn't. Cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye, it wasn't me. That's, that's what, it, P Peter is grasping at straws to do everything he can to disassociate himself, to intentionally remove himself from Jesus for his own safety. He leaves Jesus totally, completely abandoned. Nobody even wants to know him, have a history with him. And meanwhile, the cock, it says, is crowing, and Peter realizes he's done the unthinkable. He's abandoned Jesus too. And at the very end, the last verse, that is the only way to sum up this chapter. And he broke down, and he wept. It's just a harrowing circumstance. It's sad. It's like watching a train wreck. Or the way everyone slows down to get a peek at a wreck on the highway as you slowly swerve past cars. I feel like a looky-loo in here, like seeing all this horrible stuff. And the question, why, why do we need to see this? Who, who would ever want to take the time to think through that? It's just a horrible Sad display of betrayal and injustice and total abandonment. And as I think about that, there, there's really two, two reasons I want to draw your attention to. Two reasons that I think will help us process why it is that God would care that we know these things. 
The first is this, is that Jesus didn't sleep. And that Jesus doesn't sleep. Jesus didn't sleep. There's an integral connection in this passage between Jesus and the disciples and how that night in Gethsemane in the first part bore its fruits in the faithfulness of Jesus and in the abandonment of his sleepy disciples. We can see very clearly that what is happening on that night as Jesus is awake and praying produces something very different than the way things play out than the disciples who slept and wouldn't pray. Jesus didn't sleep. He was praying. In verses 32 to 42, Jesus saw this was coming and He stayed up preparing for it. He stayed up preparing Himself for this train wreck. He saw that God was to be feared above the religious and political elite, that God was to be feared above the Romans. He saw that God's cup of wrath was the real danger He faced. And in prayer, wrestling with God in this moment, His fears were properly ordered. His fears were properly put in place and they were attended with truth. The assumption is is that when we look out into the world and we see danger, we think that our emotions are wise guides. Nothing can be further from the truth. The way we feel typically is ignorant and selfish. That's just, that's just normal. In fact, that's the majority of parenting is helping your kids to see that, right? When your children refuse to tell the truth or they refuse to be kind to their siblings, it's because inside of them they feel like it's the right thing to do. And we have to literally be forced out of that from the time we're the littlest. And if we don't, well, it can be a very bad situation. Jesus knows that the human heart needs, requires strength and wisdom from God to process and think through and then engage life in a way that is appropriate. And especially with us in our because of just the reality of sin and the selfishness of our own hearts, we are looking out for ourselves before we're looking out for other people. And here, Jesus' heart is ordered so that he is willing to receive that cup out of love for us. And it's only with the grace of God, God coming in and reordering his heart, that would allow him to do that. He was able to see, he was able to accept, That God's wrath mattered way more than Rome. Way more than the abandonment of His disciples. And so He took it silently. He took it silently, afraid of the thing of most power, and that is God Himself. And so He obeyed God to drink that cup. He was awake to the resurrection, though, as well. He knew, He knew that there was hope, life, and light beyond the wrath of God. He knew that. I mean, this is what Hebrews tells us, right? Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2 says that he endured the cross, despised the shame for the joy that was set before him. He he was able, God helped him to see that this condemnation and abandonment were not the defining feature of his identity or of his life. And the reality is, is when we face danger, we tend to think, we tend to think that people's rejection of us, people's abandonment of us, defines us as a person. That's, that's the way we think. And we feel that, and that's why it feels so dark and horrible when people reject us or have harsh things to say to us. It's because we trust that other people's opinions and thoughts and feelings about us are the ultimate things that matter in life. It feels that way. And so we're broke down and we react in self-protection. And Jesus here, God orders his heart. He helps, them, he helps his heart to prioritize the right, the right fear. And yet, though Jesus wrestles and finds his heart ordered to face this harrowing circumstance, look at 
verse 38 with me. In verse 38, Jesus says, watch and pray. Listen to Jesus' words here. Watch and pray, talking to the disciples, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus knew they were going to be tempted to abandon him. He knew it. He knew that they needed strength. They needed wisdom from God. He knew that they were weak. And even though Peter was willing, I mean, he, he stood on the outside looking in. Like, he, you could, to give Peter a little credit, I mean, he's there. He's trying. He's trying to associate with Jesus. He's on the outside. He, he hasn't run away and just completely dropped Jesus. He's there on the outside. But he's too weak to actually enter into and associate himself with it. And Jesus knew. He, he knew that these guys that we are too weak to manage, to manage the difficulties and circumstances of life, such that even the fear of a little tiny girl would take them out without the strength that comes by way of communing with God and prayer. You and I need to see this because without communion with God and prayer, we are weak. Simply put. We're weak. We may have great intentions, but we're weak. And that weakness, it puts itself forward all the time. My kids know this in me. I want to be a good dad. I try to be a good dad. And in my weakness, I fail frequently. And Jesus here is showing us that the reason we fail, the reason we fail is because we're operating under fears and self-protection that come out of the weakness of our, of our soul that think that people actually have the ability to bless us. That people actually have the ability to define and determine the course of our life when ultimately it's God. And he, fearing him, this is why the scriptures say the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. And when we go to God, he orders our disordered hearts so that we fear the right things in prayer. And in this way, he functions as our strength and the chief means of building up hope, strength and resolve and a deep sense of future joy in the face of difficulty so that we can persevere in serving him and loving other people as, as we're called to do. If you fear abandonment, Jesus did too. If you fear difficulty, suffering and pain, it's not a bad thing to fear those things. It's normal. Jesus himself did. It's good and right to fear it. It's good to fear that other people don't like you. You shouldn't want to not be liked. Jesus isn't wrong to fear here. He took those fears to God, and God rewired his heart directed them properly and put rebar into the soul of Jesus to endure the coming pains. He taught Jesus to fear him, not the cross. And it was seeing the cup of God's wrath coming from God's hands, not the Roman cross that Jesus feared. And in it, he was strengthened to see the joys set before him and persevere through all of these things. And so the question is, are you awake and praying this morning? Are you awake and praying? Are you going to God in your fear? Do you find yourself running from pain? Running from hard conversations? Running from repenting? Running in fear from other people's opinions and judgments on you? Do you feel weak in the knees at the prospect of potential false accusations against you? Hesitation to serve and love because you're afraid of being misunderstood? Or do you fail to love for fear of just being abandoned by people? You put effort in and they walk away. Do you fear, and in that fear, hesitate to tell people of Jesus' love? Those fears are evidence that we're sleepy, that our eyes and our hearts are not in clear focus, and that our fears need reordered and our souls need steeled by prayer. 
So I think Jesus would tell us, arouse your soul, wake up, and pray for the strengthening of your soul that hope would rise and you would be faithful as God calls you to be. The last thing as we wrap up for us to see is that Jesus here also does drink the cup. He wants us, we're to see this because Jesus does indeed drink the cup that he accepts in this passage in verses 35 and 36 is Jesus is, is asking God to take this cup, this, this wrath away from him. He ultimately accepts it, yet not what I will in verse 36, but what you will. Jesus asked God and pleaded to have his wrath put away from him. He begged God for there to be another way, and he knew the pain it would bring him. Not just abandonment from friends, but even from God himself, where he would on the cross cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why in the world would he accept that cup? Why would he do that? You might ask the same question for why it is that a good husband will jump up off the couch when he sees his wife lugging a bag of trash outside to the trash can. He wants to bear the weight of the trash, smell it, contend with it, and the elements outdoors to relieve his wife of having to face it herself. That's what a good man does. In his love for her, he steps up, he contends with the trash, taking the burden from her so that he can dispose of it. And taking out the trash is very simple. It's a very simple thing. It's a nothing in comparison to what Jesus is enduring. But it's the same thing in the heart that's happening. It's different in the way it manifests in various ways. But the heart, it's the same. Jesus picked up the cup and drank it, submitting to the Father. And the Father demanded it because he wanted to pick up our trash from us. He wanted to relieve us from the burden of having to bear the weight of God's wrath and he picks up his own judgment against us and takes it out and delivers it to the trash. God looks down. He sees us abandoning him. He sees us abandoning one another. He sees us sinning against him and one another, creating a world of corruption, abandoned, hurting, isolated, lonely people who isolate and abandon each other. He sees us struggling under the weight of that and he sees the guilt and the shame and the pain of it all he sees us as peter weeping under it and in his love for us he takes it he takes it from us the cup that was reserved for us he drinks it he takes out the trash for us he did not like the looks of the cup no doubt who would but who also wants to sling a bag of trash on their back when someone else is on their way out the door with it already. Only someone who loves you and who is ready to lay aside their rights, privileges, and comforts for you would do that. Good husband does that for his wife. Most certainly, Jesus does this for us out of his love for us, drinking the cup, taking out our trash for us. If you need, if you feel the need to get help so you do not abandon God this morning, or you need help to stop abandoning others, you need to know this. Jesus drank down the wrath of God and then rose victoriously over your sin, rose victoriously on the other side of God's wrath, so that you could not simply be forgiven of your sin, but so that you could ultimately be transformed by the new life that Christ brings in his resurrection, so that we could really genuinely have the hope of change and transformation, so that we could be different and not abandon God or abandon others. Are you awake to the reality that Jesus drank that cup for you out of his love? and made you right with God, and so is with you, never leaving you, 
proving it to you because he drank that cup for you. And that now you live in the security of God's love and the hope of being made into his image as one who doesn't abandon but gives up their rights and their life for others. But also, if you feel abandoned by God, you need to know this. Jesus suffered the worst possible kind of abandonment so that you would never have to face it or endure it. So that you can know for certain his love for you, his enduring and his inescapable presence with you, and he's with you not as someone who is disconnected and unaware of what it is that you're going through, but he has experienced the same abandonment to an even greater degree than you are capable of knowing. He knows he is a brother, an abandoned brother with you. He knows loneliness. He knows rejection. And so there is comfort and hope and even joy to share with Jesus even in the midst of the most lonely and difficult circumstances of abandonment. Emmaus, God wants you to hear this, that you would be awake to his presence with you, his love for you, that you would be awake to commune with him, find safety in his love, and have your heart properly ordered to love and fear him and his love for you. Let's ask for his help to not only receive that, but to celebrate it as a people. So Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, often it feels like you are disconnected and just don't care. And yet, as we come to you in prayer, we are reminded that you cared enough to drink the cup of wrath so that we don't have to. And I pray, Lord, that that reality would help to eliminate and scour our hearts of the sense that we are alone and that it would create within us a deep and abiding joy and peace knowing that we're not only reconciled with you, but we are ushered into communion with you and with your people. So Lord, I pray that you would reorder our hearts and cause us to see and perceive clearly your love for us in, in Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name.